afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the regular seminar for Oxford Transitional Justice Research. Today, I'm, I'm Nikki Palmer. I'm the convener of the group, and thanks, thanks very much for making it out um, this late in the term. Everyone's doing well. Michaelmas can be slightly overwhelming, but um, I, I can certainly understand why, because we've got a fantastic lineup for you tonight, um, and it's an absolute pleasure for me to be able to briefly introduce Dr. Francesca Lesser and Christopher Hall. Um, Francesca is, is quite well known to many of us. She's a research assistant at the Latin American Center and she's an OTJR committee member. Um, and excitingly today, we need to bring attention to the fact that she's also the co-editor of the book Struggles Against Impunity. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hope no one's going to call me on that. <laughs> to 2011, so, and it's actually the launch of that book, this book that is sort of bringing us here today. Um, Francesca, in addition to editing books, is also currently working on a project funded by the US National Science um, Foundation and the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council on the impact with Lee Payne on the impact of transitional justice and human rights and on, on human rights and democracy. And before coming to Oxford, Francesca did have another life, um, where she was a research associate at the Latin American International Affairs Program at the London School of Economics, and a visiting lecturer on transitional justice and human rights at the University of the Republic, which is Uruguay's largest and most established public university. So when she's speaking out Uruguay tonight, she's definitely doing that from an extremely informed perspective. And this presentation is complemented and in fact led um, by Christopher Hall, who is joining us this evening from London, where he is the senior legal advisor at the International Secretariat for Amnesty International. And we're enormously pleased to have Christopher here. He's collaborated with us in the past, and, um, and we're very, we're very um, happy to be welcoming you here. Christopher has been responsible. He's, he has a number of, lots of years of experience at Amnesty International, where he's been responsible for Amnesty's efforts to establish and support the International Criminal Court, and for Amnesty International's work on other international justice issues, including issues on universal jurisdiction, amnesties, and the rule of law. And so it's really with this wealth of both practitioner and academic experience that we're going to be talking this evening about Uruguay, struggles against impunity and barriers to justice for crimes, against, for crimes and international law. And given the recent le legal developments in Uruguay at the moment, I'm sure it's going to be a very lively discussion, but I really leave that up to the experts to speak about. So Christopher's going to speak to us first and sort of give us the international legal framework, and then it's inside of that that Francesca is going to talk to the specific Uruguay experience. You've heard enough from me. Over to Christopher. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm somewhat hesitant in the, uh, simply because I'm not the expert in my, in my unit, the International Justice Project, uh, on statute limitation. The expert is Hugo Relva, um, an Argentine lawyer based in La Plata, who uh, drafted this paper uh, in response to uh, very quickly in response to developments in Uruguay. Um, but because there are no video conferencing facilities here, he cannot uh, uh, address you. So I've been asked to to, to step in. Um, what, um, I've been asked to talk about statute of limitations and crimes under international law. And so, uh, although my presentation is a little bit of a hodgepodge, I'll just give you a quick overview of the points I would like to, to cover. 
definitions, different types of statute of limitations, the various rationales that have been advanced in favor of statute of limitations, in particular with respect to crimes under international law and responses to those rationales. Brief note about procedure, the debate about whether the um, the statute of limitations are procedural or substantive. And uh, finally, a uh, brief review of the status of statutes of limitation in international law uh, with regard to crimes under international law. Uh, there isn't any real agreed definition of statute of limitations because they cover quite a broad range of things. But uh, for tonight, a working definition is um, a provision that requires a specified legal step in a criminal or civil proceeding to be taken before a certain time. There are a number of different types of statutes of limitation. Uh, one is the requirement that a prosecution or a civil claim be filed by a certain date. This is uh, perhaps the most common and well-known form. And it under such statute of limitations, it requires that a prosecution be commenced within a certain period after a particular event, which could be the date of the crime, the date the crime was discovered, uh, the date the victim reached majority, that is the legal age of uh, responsibility, or some other date, such as a certain period of time after a told statute of limitations, that is one that's been suspended for a period of time, resumes. And there, the same thing by analogy with regard to civil claims having to be filed either in a civil case or, as is uh, common in many civil law countries, in a criminal proceeding by a certain date. Um, <clears throat> another type of statute of limitations is a requirement that the prosecution or civil proceeding be completed by a certain date. Um, this is... Uh, uh, a somewhat strange uh, form of statute of limitations, um, which in lengthy or complex cases can lead to cases being abandoned just short of a judgment, and it creates a perverse incentive to the defendant to delay the proceedings as long as possible in the hope that they will end without a final judgment. The situation uh, I think we're all familiar with in Italy uh, over the past decade. Um, there's another, another type of statute of limitations is a requirement that a sentence have been served by uh, a certain date after conviction. And you see a somewhat similar provision in uh, extradition requests, uh, which also creates a, a number of problems. But it creates a perverse incentive for, um, for a convicted person who is on bail or on release to flee and evade capture until the period has expired. This was uh, an issue in the uh, Paul Toubier case in, in, in France. So it's not; these are not simply of academic interest. Um, then uh, there, you often will see, uh, with regard to um, uh, statute of limitations, different periods of time, whether it's depending on a criminal case or a civil case. And then there's, we have run into a number of ambiguities uh, where you can file civil claims in criminal proceedings and which, which statute of limitations apply. So that's just one more little uh, twist. And then 
there are also tolling principles. I'll come back to that in a minute, which is uh, a, um, a principle under which a statute of limitations is suspended for a particular period um, because it's considered unrealistic or unfair uh, for the for the statute of limitations to keep running such as inability to, for legal or other practical reasons to bring a prosecution or a civil suit. Now, before discussing the rationales uh, advanced in favor of statute limitations, in particular for crimes in international law and the responses, I thought I might start with two observations by leading thinkers about the nature of crimes and prescriptions that may be of some interest. First, Cesar Beccaria in the late uh, 18th century said, those crimes that are so awful that they linger in men's memories once proven admit of no limitation on the period within which a prosecution be brought in the case of a criminal who has sought to flee his punishment. And half a century later, Jeremy Bentham explain why statute of limitations should not apply to serious offenses. But when the question relates to more serious offenses, for example, the fraudulent acquisition of a large sum of money, polygamy, a rape, a robbery, it would be odious and fatal to allow wickedness after a certain time to triumph over innocence. No treaty should be had with malefactors of that character. Let the avenging sword remain always hanging over their heads. The sight of a criminal in the peaceful enjoyment of the fruit of his crime, protected by the laws he has violated, is a consolation to the evildoers, an object of grief to men of virtue, a public insult to justice and to morals. To perceive all the absurdity of an impunity acquired by the lapse of time, it is only necessary to imagine the law to be expressed in terms like these. But if the murderer, the robber, the fraudulent acquirer of another's goods shall succeed for 20 years in eluding the vigilance of the tribunals, his success shall be rewarded, his security shall be reestablished, and the fruits of his crimes shall become his lawful possession. Um, one scholar is Ruth Koch, who's written a, a, an excellent book on the subject uh, of statute of limitations, has suggested that there are basically two types of rationales, uh, procedural, which are applicable to all crimes, and substantive, which are applicable uh, primarily to crimes of international law. And I'll just go through uh, um, those um, somewhat uh, uh, briefly in light of the time. They're probably the most, uh, they include stale evidence, imposing sanctions for prosecutorial inactivity, ensuring certainty for the perpetrator. I'm not making that one up. Uh, avoiding unfair trials and the old age of the accused. Uh, a common contention is that statute limitations are necessary because the memories of witnesses fade, witnesses die, or become impossible to locate, the scene of the crime is changed, and documents become lost. This, of course, is a very uh, serious concern. Uh, the fading of memories is unavoidable, as the case of Demian Yuk in Israel um, demonstrates. And as you know, he was uh, uh, convicted and sentenced to death, and then uh, he was acquitted on appeal because of the fallible memories of the, uh, of the witnesses. However, there are 
a range of other forms of evidence, including documentary evidence, DNA analysis, analyses of uh, bodies and the crime scene, satellite photos, and so on, uh, that can be uh, used and often are far more reliable, uh, even with relatively recent cases. In addition, there are new theories of criminal responsibility with crimes under international law that have been developed in the past uh, uh, decade or two, including joint criminal enterprise uh, and accomplice liability of concentration camp guards. Um, making no value judgment on it, uh, there are problems with both uh, from a due process perspective, but we don't have time to go into that. Um, documentary evidence often becomes more available as time passes, particularly when there's uh, been a, a, new, a new government installed. There's a famous uh, incident in Paraguay with an entire room uh, of documents was found documenting Operation Condor, um, and NGOs quickly moved to, to, to protect it, um, but that would never have been available before. Uh, similar things happened with opening of archives in places like Chad uh, after Habre fell, uh, after the Berlin Wall fell in Eastern Europe, and other situations. In any event, it's a very crude tool, um, and uh, as the Sawanio case in the United Kingdom, uh, the Court of Appeal concluded that courts could make a, a determination case by case to see whether the interests of justice were served uh, by permitting the case to go forward so long afterwards. Uh, another argument that's been advanced is that it's important to sanction prosecutorial inactivity. Rather, again, a, a rather crude tool, but there are uh, one, if it's the prosecutor in the jurisdiction, there are other ways related to, uh, to to sanction the prosecutor in terms of career development. But there are a whole range of other uh, reasons why uh, it would be inappropriate, and some of these are uh, uh, consistent with the tolling principle and depending on the jurisdiction. So, for example, in universal jurisdiction cases, the, the victim will be have been... A, Unable to obtain justice in the in the in the state where the crime occurred, so sanctioning the prosecutor has no no relevance uh, in the state exercising universal jurisdiction. Also, prosecutions might be uh, have been prevented by amnesties or or pardons or similar measures of impunity. Uh, victims of crimes of sexual violence, particularly children, are often unwilling to come forward until long after the crimes occurred. Um, um, victims often fear for a very long time the, the threats to them if they were to proceed with cases. Um, and indeed, with the crime of enforced disappearance, a whole doctrine uh, developed of considering it as a continuing crime to avoid statute limitations. So the whole concept of sanctioning prosecutorial inactivity is, is, is really uh, not a particularly strong one. Uh, it has also been claimed, as I mentioned, that uh, um, statute limitations are essential to ensure that the perpetrator does not spend years of uncertainty about whether he or she will be prosecuted. Now, apart from the laugh test, there is simply no human right to not being prosecuted 
after a certain length of time. I'll return to that in a minute. Um, it's also been argued that statute of limitations are essential to ensure that the accused has a fair trial. Um, and this goes back to the question of whether evidence is stale. This is, uh, um, as I said, that there are a whole range of other ways to deal with that. Um, and it can be just as difficult for the prosecution as it can be for the defense. So it works uh, both ways. An an another argument uh, related to fair trial was made by Maurice Papon, the Vichy collaborator, who claimed that judges will not be impartial 50 years after uh, the event because they won't understand the, the pressures that were on the accused and the political context. Of course, neither of those is, a particular, is legitimate with, with uh, uh, consideration when determining guilt or innocence, or they might be relevant to mitigation of, of punishment. Um, moreover, there's no evidence that uh, judges uh, are less impartial after the crime, uh, long after the crime, than shortly after the crime. Um, so it's, 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 a rather, it's a rather weak argument. Um, moreover, the concept of prompt trial is triggered by arrest or some other step by the state. It's not, uh, generally, it's not uh, a, a relevant concept when it's talking about uh, a delay between the date of the crime and the institution of the prosecution. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but uh, as a general rule, um, that would, uh, is not the, not the case. Old age of the defendant is perhaps uh, one of the most common one objections. I mean, it's if to um, uh, excluding statute of limitations, but we've seen fair trials uh, or pr proceedings uh, undertaken which didn't come to trial, uh, involving people in their 90s, such as Pinochet, Pinochet in the Chilean cases, Papon, Barbie in France, Pripke in Italy. Demjanjuk uh, in, in Germany. So it is possible uh, to uh, have such fair trials, and courts can take effective measures, as we saw just a few days ago with the um, extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia decision that Ing Sirit, uh, who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease and should not go uh, stand trial. There are several uh, substantive rationales that have been advanced uh, in favor of statute of limitations because they really go into a whole series of questions about the very concept of uh, criminal law and punishment. I'll just allude to them here because they take us quite, a, quite far afield from the, the very uh, specific issue of whether statute of limitations um, should, uh, should exist or should not with regard to crimes inter international. So one argument is it serves no uh, retributive effect long after the crime. Um, this uh, retribution, however, should be um, dis considered as distinct from the separate concept of justice, which is simply a finding of guilt or innocence, which is independent of the actual punishment. And of course, um, that uh, involves entirely different sets of considerations. Um, uh, it's, it's argued that it, uh, that, uh, 
a prosecution long after the event that serves no general or specific deterrent effect. Uh, we could spend uh, an entire course on whether uh, criminal, uh, criminal um, prosecutions serve either general or specific deterrent effects. It's something we've stayed very, our organization has stayed away from with regard to uh, the death penalty. Um, so we've never made a utilitarian argument against the death penalty in terms of deterrence because there's absolutely no convincing evidence of either specific or general uh, deterrent effect, or certainly not a general deterrent effect. Um, then there's the let bygones be bygones argument about rehabilitation. Of course, the, the, uh, the statute of limitation is a completely crude tool, an arbitrary tool, because it will not make any determination about whether an individual has been rehabilitated, either uh, within himself or herself or with regard to society. And then there's the argument about that it will uh, preclude re uh, re reconciliation in society. This is part of the broader debate about justice versus peace. Uh, we can talk about that um, uh, later, but there is certainly no evidence that um, such uh, prosecutions long after the event um, have any effect on, on, uh, on undermining peace agreements. And in fact, um, the evidence really seems to go much the other way. Uh, and that if you don't uh, come to grips with the crimes of the past, uh, they fester and they cause huge problems, as we saw in the former Yugoslavia. Um, so there's a brief note just about the debate between whether it's a procedural right or a uh, whether the whether statute limitations are procedural or or substantive. This is was a major issue in in Germany at the time the statute of limitations for murder uh, was about to expire in in the late 1960s and uh, also has come up in some civil law countries, uh, only a few in, in Latin America, where it's been seen that uh, the, the perpetrator has a substantive right uh, um, to a statute of limitations. And if that statute of limitations has expired, then you cannot revive the statute of limitations, which is one of the reasons there was such a, uh, a mad rush to ensure that the uh, period of limitations was extended. However, that, this is a, a minority uh, view, and most considered uh, as a uh, as simply a procedural one. And so, if it has terminated, it can easily be restored. Um, now, are statute limitations prohibited for crimes under international law? Well, you see, we we had a a rather robust argument in the Uruguay paper. Um, but let me just run through some of the, uh, the evidence and realize that it's a, that our paper, is, although I think it is, it is definitely solid and we can defend every, everything we've said in it, it is a complex issue and there are, is no, um, uh, there's no complete agreement on, on the, the subject. Indeed, otherwise we wouldn't have had to issue the paper. Um, okay, first, with regard to war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, the three crimes uh, that were included in the Rome Statute uh, in Rome with definitions, uh, effect to aggression in the second. Um, the, surprisingly, 
uh, the, some of the key instruments that were adopted after the Second World War, including the Nuremberg and Tokyo Charters, the General Assembly Resolution um, affirming the principles of law in the Nuremberg uh, Charter, the Genocide Convention, the Geneva Conventions, the Protocols to the Geneva Conventions, the 1996 Draft Code of Crimes, and the Statutes of the ICTY, ICTR, and the Statute of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, Sierra, Sierra Leone not include a prohibition of statute limitations. However, um, what is the significance of that? Well, number one, with regard to the courts, most of them thought uh, that the uh, most of the drafters of the of the instruments thought that the uh, the proceedings would be over um, for their targeted suspects relatively soon, and this would not be an issue. And then, moreover, I think it's important to note that there are a huge number, well, there are a significant number of very important instruments that have excluded them. So when they, when they actually address the question of statute of limitations, they always said no statute of limitations with two exceptions. Uh, the 1945 Allied Control Council Law Number 10, uh, in, uh, adopted in 1945, suspended statute limitations that were uh, that may have existed under uh, um, the Nazi regime. The General Assembly, between 1967 and 1973, adopted a whole series of resolutions, excluding stat- saying statute limitations did not apply to war crimes and crimes against humanity. The, in 1968, they adopted the UN Convention on the Non-Applicability of Statutory Limitations to War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity, including genocide within that definition and apartheid. Um, unfortunately, only on 54 states uh, ratified the, that convention. One, one more signed it. Uh, part of the reason was that uh, states in Europe, Western Europe and North America objected to apartheid being included. There was also a provision that said that uh, it it was applicable regardless of the the date the crime committed. So that, of course, meant that any expired statute of limitations uh, had to be um, uh, uh, revived. I mean, so that you had to then make sure that where the, where the sorry where the statute of limitations had expired, prosecutions could continue. In 1974, the European states adopted their own convention, uh, avoiding the problem of the revival. Uh, uh, but uh, only seven states have ratified that uh, convention. Um, and then time has moved on. In uh, 1998, the Rome Statute was adopted and expressly excludes statute of limitations for these three crimes. And that uh, was, uh, I think, probably the most significant of the developments. Um, shortly afterwards, the Special Panels for Serious Crimes in Dili excluded it. The Inter-American Court, uh, in a number of cases, beginning with Barrios Altos, have ex- excluded statute of limitations without a great deal of reasoning. Uh, behind it, but simply saying that they didn't apply uh, to serious human rights violations. And uh, with regard to state practice, the Ruth Koch study uh, is uh, particularly interesting. And by the time of 19, 1964, 
four of 112 UN members, that's 3%, had excluded statute of limitations for these crimes. By 1990, 22% had uh, done so. And by 2005, 75% had done so. And that is partly because of the, uh, the Rome statute has had a huge impact as states start to implement, the states' parties start to implement their obligations. Aggression, it's too early to say. There are only a few states that have um, uh, defined aggression as a crime. Uh, there's an amendment to the Rome Statute, uh, which is yet to enter into force. Um, so there's a question mark there. Torture, it's not expressly excluded in the Torture Convention, but there's an absolute obligation to investigate and prosecute those cases. Uh, and the Committee Against Torture has said uh, that the limitations uh, do not uh, um, apply. Again, uh, I mean, unfortunately, without a great deal of reasoning, um, uh, really simply saying that the uh, torture violates U.S. COVID's prohibitions, which is picking up from the uh, an ICTY trial chamber judgment in the Frunzia case, um, saying that that was a consequence of uh, the U.S. COVID's prohibition, again, without any uh, reasoning. It's a little bit more problematic with enforced disappearances, unfortunately. Um, none of the instruments um, adopted have unequivocally excluded statute of limitations. Um, and they've come up with um, part, I think it was partly because of the small number of civil law countries that um, had this hostility towards uh, statute of limitations, particularly the question of revival. Plus. Uh, these instruments uh, were very difficult to draft for obvious reasons. Um, and so there is a, uh, an approach which is somewhat odd that says basically there shouldn't be any statute of limitations, but if there are, um, then it should be long and proportionate to the seriousness of the crime. At least they do recognize uh, the, the continuing nature of the crime. So as a practical matter, it may well have limited uh, value. However, um, and with extrajudicial executions, um, there isn't, the, the UN principles say that the statute of limitations should not apply. I mean, say, say sorry, that governments shall ensure that uh, persons are brought to justice without, a, without any time. Finally, in conclusion, what can we say about um, the, uh, this point? Well, none of the reasons uh, advanced for having statute of limitations bar prosecutions or civil claims for crimes under international law have any merit. Each of the procedural problems cited can be addressed by other means. None of the substantive reasons advanced for barring prosecutions or civil claims for such crimes outweigh the obligation of states to deliver justice and full reparation to victims. Strong evidence that there is increasing acceptance that statute limitations are prohibited for genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes, which is uh, increasing uh, as each state enacts, uh, each state party of the Rome Statute enacts um, implementing legislation. Um, torture remains uh, a question mark, although the, the Committee Against Torture, in a somewhat erratic fashion, uh, 
uh, scold states, parties, if they um, uh, do have statute limitations, but they need to be more vigorous. Um, with regard to enforced disappearances, uh, I think there are two factors that are encouraging. One is that as states exclude statute of limitations for enforced disappearances, which are a crime against humanity, that is committed as part of a widespread or a systematic attack on uh, civilian population, there'll, there'll be a disconnect between uh, that pro, uh, exclusion and individual cases. So I think we'll probably see pressure for uniformity. Amnesty International uh, issued a few weeks ago a checklist for effective implementation of the Disappearances Convention, and that is one of the key points that we make is that states should uh, exclude statute of limitations. I'm sorry, I went on too long. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hope the computer is going to come back. <laughs> so I wanted to start by thanking OTJR for hosting this event and having me and Christopher here. Uh, the idea back in September when we suggested mm -hmm. to uh, Nikki and Phil and Emily to organize this event was a little bit different because the scenario that was sort of looming in the horizon for Uruguay was that on the 1st of November of this month, a statute of limitation was going to set in. So all of the crimes that had been committed during the Uruguayan dictatorship would fall under the statute of limitations, and thus no prosecutions would be allowed anymore. Not that we've had very many in Uruguay anyway, so just now that prosecutions were starting, the statute of limitations just a few years later was about to set in. So over the summer we had many discussions with Hugo and with Diana at Amnesty and we thought that uh, it would be important to present the report that Hugo had done from Amnesty and it sort of coincided with the book, and I have some copies here if you want to have a look, because I'm not really going to talk about the book today, because so much has changed. So I had to basically rethink the event and rethink my presentation, but I have to say that I was really happy uh, to do so. And just to say really, uh, two words on the book. Um, the book came out just in September, really the same time as Hugo's report, and it basically came out of a conference that I organized with uh, my co-editor, Gabriela, in June 2010, and the conference was on public policies on human rights in Uruguay, memory, justice, and reparations. And the conference was really broad, so in the end we decided to go for uh, the amnesty law because both of us really couldn't stand the amnesty law that Uruguay had. So we thought we are going to go and have the book focus on the fight against impunity. So the book does have almost 20 chapters from um, all sorts of uh, individuals that came to our conference, and this includes psychologists, forensic anthropologists, academics, international human rights lawyers, journalists, uh, politicians. So it really has a wide variety of uh, perspectives um, of people that have been involved in the fight against impunity in Uruguay for the past uh, 25 years. And I say that the book was launched finally last week in Montevideo and almost 250 people attended the launch of 
unfortunately, neither of us uh, could be there, but that's a different story. So what I'm going to try to do today in the 20 minutes that I have allocated is really to give you a little bit of a historical background on Uruguay, because I know that many people are not familiar with the country. Um, and then, again, really uh, talk about briefly the amnesty law, and I'm sure Lee will say that I'm obsessed with it even now that it's gone, but I guess uh, I'll have to uh, give up when it's very soon. And then sort of uh, walk you through some of the key uh, events in the struggles against impunity, including uh, briefly, I will mention the report that Hugo prepared. And finally, I want to talk about uh, Law 18831 that was approved just three weeks ago in Uruguay that really sort of changed, and hopefully it's, it's a law that is here to stay, and it's changed the whole picture in Uruguay. So just in terms of the historical background, um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the dictatorship in Argentina or Chile or Brazil, and many people didn't know, don't know that Uruguay had a dictatorship. I didn't know myself before I started my thesis, I have to admit. But um, the Uruguayan dictatorship is very similar to the other dictatorships in the region. The 1960s and 70s were a time in the South America and Central America that were characterized by uh, repressive authoritarian and military regimes that existed in the context of the Cold War and the national security doctrine. So actually, Uruguay, the dictatorship, uh, began in June 1973, so it kind of uh, preceded uh, both Chile and Argentina, although Brazil uh, was already under military rule since about 10 years. And I think one of the main features of the Uruguayan regime was that it was a civic military dictatorship. Most of the regimes had uh, collaborations with civilians, but I think it's particularly strong in the Uruguayan case. And this actually turned out to be very helpful because one of the ways to go around the amnesty law was actually to charge the civilians for the crimes committed during the dictatorship. So the repression in Uruguay was uh, very pervasive. It's actually considered as the most totalitarian regime in the region. And it had a system, the so-called ABC system, whereby all of the citizens had to get a letter of democratic faith by the authorities in order to have a job or even have, have a passport. So if you had the letter C, you would not have a passport issued to you. So it would, like this, the dictatorship had complete control over Uruguayan society at the time. And of course, this was easy for the government to do because Uruguay had a population of 2.5 million at the time, so it's a really a tiny population. And I think it's important to mention that because that's when some of the numbers up there that if you know about other military regimes or other human rights violations, they probably sound small compared to the 30,000 disappeared of Argentina or the 200,000 of Guatemala, but you have to bear in mind that Uruguay had a tiny population at the time, so the impact of this violation was um, quite remarkable. Especially the number of people in exile, almost 10% of Uruguay's population left the country at the time of the dictatorship. So. 
Again, as uh, Chile or uh, Brazil, Uruguay also had a negotiated transition that was uh, sealed by the so-called uh, Navy Club Pact of August 1984 that was signed by the military commanders and the representatives of uh, political parties. As in the case of most negotiated transitions, this pact already sort of reduced the possibility of justice and accountability. And this was further limited when, in 1985, President Julio Maria Sanguinetti was elected. And he came from the Colorado party, which had actually been the party that carried out with the military, the coup, back in 1973. So it was the party that was the closest to the armed forces. And Sanguinetti himself had no intention whatsoever to uh, open up the Pandora's box on the crimes of the dictatorship. So the government didn't adopt, unlike Argentina, for example, a truth commission or prosecuted the military commanders. But rather, they were hoping to just keep everything under control and keep everything silent. But what they didn't uh, imagine is that in Uruguay, you can directly go to the courts and initiate your own cases. So already uh, in April uh, 1985, so one month into the new democratic government, victims or their relatives initiated a, a rising number of human rights crimes. Uh, of human rights crimes denunciations at the courts. And of course, the courts, at the time, there was no self-amnesty, like in Argentina, for example, so the courts uh, started investigating the crimes. And the armed forces that were uh, still very powerful from the negotiated transition were not uh, very impressed with all these uh, rising denunciations and summons to appear in court. So they made it very clear to the government that they would refuse to appear in the courts. So as a result of that, and because the government was rather uh, focused on preventing any source of instability or even the possibility of a return of military rule, they decided to go for a political solution. And after uh, substantial negotiations between the political party, you have the adoption of the amnesty law, Ley de Caducidad, in December 1986. And the law is very short. It only has four articles. Well, it had four articles, I should say. But it set up a very comprehensive system, because it was an amnesty for military and police officers covered all the crimes carried out in fulfillment of functions or following orders before the democratic transition. It didn't, however, cover economic <coughs> crimes. But the worst aspect of the amnesty law, if it could be any worse than this <laughs> by this point, was to set up a system by which if anybody uh, presented a case of human rights violations to the court, the court couldn't make a decision on that. It had to pass everything on to the executive, and the executive decided whether the amnesty law applied or not. So it's sort of uh, against the separation of powers, but it still was adopted. And in the same, okay, in the same uh, law, there was a provision saying that it was up to the executive to investigate cases of disappearances, which again are part of mandates of the courts. So um, I really don't have time to go uh, through all of this, but these are some of the 
uh, examples of uh, the different ways in which uh, Uruguayan civil society, and in the book you have uh, so much information about all of them, has tried over the years to challenge uh, both the amnesty law and the broader uh, situation of impunity in Uruguay. And Uruguayan civil society is really interesting because it's very heterogeneous. So you have human rights organizations, victims groups, you have the students' union, you have the trade union who were all working together for this shared goal. And a number of tools were employed. So you had um, resort to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, to the UN Human Rights Committee. There was a referendum on the amnesty law in 1989. There was a plebiscite in 2010. So there was a wide uh, variety of tools that civil society adopted to try to undermine bit by bit the dominant impunity in Uruguay. And one particular important strategy was the circumvention of amnesty laws that, if you know, Argentina or Chile was also happening since the mid-1990s in those countries where you had human rights lawyers really sitting down, reading the laws and identifying how they could sort of turn the amnesty law against itself. And as I mentioned before, the amnesty law doesn't cover civilians because in the law it only mentions military and police. So human rights lawyers started arguing that civilians were not included. And this specific argument was actually the one that led to the first charge of human rights crimes against the dictatorship foreign minister that was accused in October 2002 of the unlawful imprisonment of a disappeared teacher. And that was the first case. So it, was, it took 17 years for the first case of human rights crimes to be actually uh, charged and prosecuted in Uruguay. So you may wonder what was the response of the executive to all of this. And I really love this photo. This is President Sanguinetti, who's looking completely innocent, like he's done nothing and he wants to have nothing to do with the whole uh, issue of human rights uh, violations. And of course, he didn't have anything to do with it, because he just applied the amnesty law. He was president for 10 years in two different times. And he applied systematically the amnesty law to any case of human rights violations, whether it was disappearances, assassinations, it didn't matter. It would automatically be archived under the amnesty law. So the first developments in terms of official transitional justice policies by the government only came in 2000 when the Comisión para la Paz, a sort of truth commission, although it was really criticized, uh, was adopted. And this was the first step in which the government eventually admitted that uh, crimes of state terrorism had been perpetrated during the Uruguayan dictatorship. And as you see, in the last uh, 10 years, there's been uh, many more developments, especially uh, since the election of the first uh, left-wing government in 2005 by the Frente Amplio and President Vasquez, the one at the top. Of course, many more things could have happened, but at least some important developments took place, including excavations and military sites. But Sanguinetti denied that any anybody had disappeared in Uruguay. They all disappeared in Argentina because they were in exile there. 
So finally in 2005, 2006, the first two bodies of disappeared were found uh, buried at military sites. And actually three weeks ago, just before the approval of the new law, a third body was found uh, again at a military site. So many important developments, but probably the most important is that the Frente Amplio government adopted a different interpretation of the amnesty law. Because according to the amnesty, all the cases go to the executive, and the executive decides. So while until 2005 everything was always archived, uh, the Frente Amplio government starts to adopt a different interpretation. So for example, the law didn't apply to um, crimes committed by civilians or high-ranking military officers. If you remember, it said uh, crimes committed while following orders. So lawyers again argued, so if you were in a command, then you can be held responsible for what you ordered. Also, uh, the law was not to be applied for uh, crimes committed outside of Uruguayan borders. So many of the disappearances that happened in Argentina, but also in Chile, could be uh, prosecuted even though the law was still in place. <coughs> and also uh, the illegal appropriation of children, that was also a crime could, that could be uh, prosecuted. So as a result of these changes uh, since 2006, you had about 30 cases of human rights violations that were uh, prosecuted by the courts, which is not a massive number if we think of Argentina or Chile, but I think it's quite a significant number in just uh, five years. Um, so I wanted to talk um, a little bit about the recent challenges and sort of give you the story behind the Uruguay report that Hugo wrote. So in June earlier this year, uh, the Supreme Court um, addressed um, an appeal sentence that had reached the Supreme Court, and this, in this uh, sentence, sorry, in the, um, the, pro the, the prosecutor had tried to argue that enforced disappearance should be considered as a crime against humanity and a crime under international law. And the prosecutor did it to get a response from the Supreme Court, because until then, all the judges in Uruguay had always used ordinary crime categories. So everybody that was sentenced was sentenced for aggravated homicide, even though the case related to disappearance, because national courts were sort of reluctant to use international law. So they adjudicated the crimes using the Uruguayan criminal code that didn't have the category of enforced disappearance until 2006. And because most disappearances happened in the late 1970s, the courts would say, we cannot apply this law from 2006 to crimes that happened 20, 30 years before. So they used the category of homicide or aggravated homicide. And the Supreme Court, once they confirmed the sentence, they confirmed the sentence saying these were aggravated homicides. They didn't say it was not enforced disappearance, so they were quite ambiguous, but they sort of endorsed the ongoing approach of using the ordinary crimes categories. And the problem was that if you use aggravated homicide, then the statute of limitation was about to set in in November because uh, all homicides have a 20-year statute of limitation 
which had been increased to 26 years and eight months from the transition to account for the gravity of the crimes that had been committed. But in any case, independently of the amnesty law or anything else, if the courts kept on using this category, there would be no prosecutions in Uruguay. So uh, me and Hugo started talking, and I sort of bombarded Hugo with bad news from Uruguay, saying, surely this cannot happen. And Hugo was very receptive, and he was appalled that actually at the sentence that the Supreme Court had just released. So he was very responsive, and right away he said that he was going to look into this, and hopefully the amnesty could um, do something about it because it was against all of the principles that it uh, that were involved. So um, the report that Hugo produced, and if you speak Spanish, it's not that long, so you should really take uh, uh, 15 minutes to read it. is particularly important because it really urges the Uruguayan Supreme Court to change the legal reasoning that they adopted. And Hugo goes through some of the same ins legal instruments that Christopher was mentioning just before to show how the crimes of enforced disappearance, although it wasn't codified in national law, it still existed in some of the human rights instruments, but also existed as a principle of use cogen, so it didn't have to be codified for the law, for the courts to be able to apply this category in Uruguay when prosecuting uh, the crimes. And actually in the report, Hugo shows that some other countries like Argentina, Colombia, Chile, and Peru have actually prosecuted human rights crimes even though they didn't have enforced disappearance as a category in their own national law. So there is a sort of state practice in that, in that respect. So uh, just to conclude in the uh, last uh, five minutes, so this is the law that basically so far changed everything because on October 27th, so just a few days before the statute of limitation was going to set in, the Uruguayan parliament finally, and I say finally because there's been a similar attempt uh, in May earlier this year and another one in October last year, so it's not the first time that the Uruguayan parliament tries to uh, do something about the amnesty law, but they could never get enough votes to adopt a law. So finally, uh, law 18831 was adopted. And again, it's a very short law, but the three main provisions are particularly important. So the law derogates the amnesty law, saying that um, from now on, the Uruguayan state has the whole uh, powers to prosecute crimes uh, of the dictatorship. And then it says very clearly that statutes of limitation or any other legal uh, figures cannot be applied to the crimes of the dictatorship. And finally, I guess just to be safe, they make the statement to say that the crimes of the dictatorship do constitute crimes against humanity and therefore they cannot be subjected to any uh, statutes of limitations. Of course, this is all, for me, <laughs> very exciting, finally, to have this law and to be uh, rid of the amnesty law. But unfortunately, the question is very uh, problematic and it still triggers a lot of debate inside Uruguay because, as you can imagine, many people, especially in the armed forces and the Colorado party that was in power, 
they don't want to have any prosecutions or any investigations into these issues. So you already had at the time of the uh, lobbying approved the armed forces, uh, the uh, military circles of the armed forces saying that they are going to the Inter-American court directly. So for some reason, they don't need to go to the commission first. So they were going to go directly to the Inter-American court and of course get this, uh, get the court to be on their side. But there is a threat, and many have said that this is quite possible, that this new law will be a challenge on the constitutional constitutionality grounds. So it is possible that the Supreme Court will have to, to make a decision and say whether this recent law is constitutional. And of course, this is uh, important because if the law is sort of uh, scrapped, then like the whole situation is back to square one. Also, there is a threat that some of the judges could still apply the statutes of limitations if they decide that these were homicides, and they could still go ahead and apply the statutes of limitations for that. But on the positive side, um, I think it's uh, quite likely to, that we will be able to see a rising number of uh, prosecutions, and this is for two reasons. So not only because the new law does allow prosecutions to go ahead, but also because Uruguay received a condemnation by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in the Hellman case, in which uh, the court said very clearly that Uruguay has to investigate these crimes and they cannot invoke any amnesty laws or any other provisions that they may have. So in order to comply with the court sentence, the Uruguayan executive has passed a decree reopening all the cases that have been archived under the amnesty law in the past 30 years. So there's about 90 cases that have now been reopened and will be prosecuted. And just to uh, conclude, of course, there are a number of challenges because although in my talk I only uh, mentioned the amnesty law, the question of impunity in Uruguay goes beyond just the amnesty law itself. So there are a number of challenges in the struggle against impunity that still remain. For example, Uruguay doesn't have a policy of reparations. Well, they do, they have one, but if you accept reparation, you have to sign a form saying that you will not bring Uruguay to court, either in Uruguay or outside of Uruguay. So nobody has signed up for reparations in Uruguay. Also, only three of over 200 disappeared have been found, so the question of identifying the missing is still ongoing. And also, there hasn't been access at all to the archives of dictatorship. If you know, in Argentina and Chile, a number of sites of uh, former detention center have been recuperated and transformed in sites of memory. This hasn't happened at all in Uruguay. And also there is a lack of support to victims that, have, uh, that go to court and testify. So although I, I hope I painted a sort of optimistic picture, I think there are still a number of issues that need to be dealt with. Thank you.